Welcome to Geared for Growth. We're chatting with Eddie Deline, who's pretty famous for being the Housing Commission McDonald's working chap who bought his first investment property at 18 and went to 14 properties at age 26. Eddie's a very interesting character to chat to, and we have a chat about basically how he got to that point, how he saved his money, the types of property that he purchases, and how he's going to get to 100 properties in the next little while. It's a fantastic interview, and Eddie's very generous with with the information that he shares. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Here's Eddie. Eddie Deleen, thanks for joining us on Geared for Growth. Thanks very much, Bob. Really appreciate that. Glad to be here. Yeah, and I'm glad to, to have you. You've got a pretty unique story, which I'm looking forward to, to teasing apart. If you can get us kicked off, though, can you let us know who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name's uh, Eddie Deleen. I'm a property investor. I've been investing since I was uh, 18, 19 years old. I'm 27 at the moment now. I've got 14 investment properties and I've got my own uh, property buyers agency where I help others find property and build a property portfolio. You're, it's weird to sort of think that you're a veteran at 27, but you know, you're, you're like a decade into the game, right? Yeah, almost. Um, next year can be a, be a full decade for sure. So it's it's pretty crazy. <laughs> so let's um let's get into the nuts and, and bolts. I mean, um, obviously the you you've done a lot of media, um, you know, with Sunrise and shows like that, and you know, the, it's a it's a it's a great sort of catchphrase to talk about the you know growing up in the housing commission and all that sort of stuff. But I I definitely did want to sort of touch on that because I think that sort of defines part of your drive and, and, and who you are. Um, obviously, you've got the solid property behind you, but um, can you tell us about growing up in Western Sydney? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, for me, growing up in Western Sydney was, it was, it was a pretty crazy experience. Um, I grew up in Mount Druitt and even worse, I grew up in a suburb called Wilmot. And that was, that's still arguably probably the worst suburb in Sydney yep. in, in terms of crime, um, you know, depression, drugs, and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it's extremely um, bad suburbs that I grew up in. Um, grew up on housing commission. I guess times were very, very tough for my family. I grew up with a single mother on a pension as well. So we're probably the poorest family I knew uh, in, in terms of having, you know, possessions, um, a house. No one my family friends, uh, cousins and all that kind of stuff. No one actually owned a house, let alone an investment property. We didn't know what, what investment property was back then. Um, so growing up from, you know, the ages of, you know, being an early teenager, I started, you know, realising that, you know, eventually time to time we'd go to different suburbs and, you know, mum would go, we go to the city for some reason or on a school excursion or whatever it is. And I'd see all the other nice suburbs with, you know, the different demographic of people. And I would then go back to where I lived and be like, holy crap, like this is, you know, I don't want to be like this when I grow yeah. up. I don't want to be in the same position. I don't want to, you know, grow around this area, these, you know, and that kind of stuff. Cause it's just, it's a very um, negative and, you know, area that's full of depression um well that i grew up with anyway not saying the whole everyone's like that there but it was it was just very scary for me as a kid and i knew that in the future like it really created a big drive and a mindset shift that when i was like you know 15 16 17 i was like i'm not good i do not want to be here when i'm 27 37 you know another 10 15 years away 
I do not want to be in the same position. Like I don't want to be struggling for food and, you know, struggling to pay bills and all that kind of stuff and just, you know, hooked on alcohol and drugs like everyone was around me. So like, from a very young age, I just became very, very determined and very, you know, set on. Like I wanted to get out of there and I wanted to, when I have kids, I didn't want that to be the exact same story because it's just, you know, it's a spiral of um, that kind of negative lifestyle. So I just wanted to change and that's why I really knew that something's got to change and I have to make a plan. And, um, yeah, so from that from the early stage, I really, uh, got really determined and I set a plan and um, to, to get out of there basically and change that must have been a, a real sort of culture shock for you to, to go from, you know, Mount Druid and places like that into the city to see wealth that I guess, you know, you didn't quite know existed, right? Because what, what, when, when you grow up, you sort of think your surroundings are, are relatively normal. Um, but I guess, you, you know, the combination of that and, and you know, you said in, in media before, you grew up feeling helpless and this this was all about the drive about not being in that situation yourself but a lot of people you know might have that kind of idea but end up in those negative cycles you know we've all seen the the struggle streets and the things like that what what do you think made yourself different to go i'm not happy with this situation and and i'm actually um you know hell bent on dragging myself into a different one it's it's a very hard, hard question i think that one um i've been asked it multiple times and you know maybe it was just i don't know something different different about myself I, don't, I actually don't know what it is but i just always wanted more i was from a, a young age i was always very competitive i guess in that sense so i was competitive in sports when i played sports when i was younger competitive in you know all different types of things and i guess growing up when i did when we'd venture out because from the ages of you know when i was say a toddler to 15, 16, we never even left, my family never even left the western suburbs, so we didn't know what other places were like besides Mount Druid, Blacktown, and those kind of, you know, lower social economic areas. Um, so once we finally, say, in excursions, I remember, like, catching a train to the city and then going through, you know, the Sydney CBD and all that kind of stuff, and it was one of the first times I've ever been there. Looking at the different areas and, you know, the amazing nice houses and seeing, you know, the people in suits and all that kind of stuff. I never saw that when I was growing up. It was very, very, you know, funny yeah. to think that, but I never saw that. And, you know, coming coming back to it, I guess that competitive edge, I was like, that seems like a lot better lifestyle than what I'm having <laughs> I'm growing up with now. Like, I guess that competitive edge kind of like I wanted to, I want to get to that stage eventually. Like, I want to, I want my kids to grow up there. I want to live around there because it looks a lot nicer. There's a beach nearby. There's, you know, um, it, the place feels a lot nicer. So, my, I guess from a young age, I was very competitive. And once I saw that, I had to. Yeah, I, I, I think um, it makes sense to me. I mean, I, I grew up in a in a, a small sort of country town without a tremendous amount of cash, and and I always sort of thought that. You know, if you saw someone driving a fancy car, then they sort of must be a celebrity, right? You know, like only 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 people that are celebrities are the rich people or the, pe- the people that are living life comfortably. But the reality is, is that there's there's masses of the population with all sorts of crazy wealth out there. But it's 
it's it's interesting you say that it was kind of invisible because I because I think that's definitely true. So step one. Yeah, absolutely. You, um, I know you had mates that are sort of saying, you know, I, I'm just going to inherit my parents' uh, house when when I when I grow up. But but for, for you, you were pragmatic and practical and thought. Step one, I need to get a job and I need to save. Can you talk us through sort of uh, I guess your your mindset there and and the direction that you went in? Yeah. So when I was a teenager. Um, Going in high school, I was probably about 14 years old. I got my first job. Uh, that was at KFC, and then I got to switch to McDonald's after that. Um, but my mindset was all was basically if I can get into the workforce. I was still going to school at the time, so I was working after school and on weekends, that kind of stuff. But um, I guess my mindset was basically get a job as soon as I can, save up as much money, and back then it was either... I wanted to either buy a fancy car, which I always wanted to buy a Ford Mustang. And then uh, once I started continuing saving, and like I guess I realised how important property was and educating myself, I started reading you know, property investing books and that kind of thing. Then I pretty much just scratched the buying the fancy car. And, <laughs> and any property, idea what you wanted right to do at school, or was that just kind of something that you knew you needed to do on the side to to get a job to to get money to save? That's that's another funny question for me. When I was in school, and I guess it was in fact from growing up where I grew up in the, you know, very poor kind of area, I didn't actually know what uni was until after I left school. And it was that's it's probably the biggest thing looking back. Like I didn't know. I thought that university or college was only in America. And by the time I left school, everyone's like, oh, we're doing, you know, studying for uni. And there was only a few people in my class at school because I went to, you know, probably not the best school either that were starting to go to uni. So I never even bothered asking the question, why do you have to go to uni? What's the deal with going to uni? So that wasn't even on my radar at the time, which is like the biggest thing because everyone's heard of uni, but back then I didn't even know what it was. Yeah, and I think that uh, your teachers probably had uh, a bit of a duty of care to explain that, that there was more to schooling than where you were at. Yeah, like I'm sure they might have ex- explained it, but maybe it just didn't register. I, just, I, I don't know. Maybe I just never thought that was on the cards because no one in my family ever went to uni before either. Yeah. Like nobody. Um, cousins, friends, family, no one's gone to university or college or any of that kind of thing. So I was like, you know, I thought you'd just get a job and then you'd work your way up within a job and then, you know, do, do it that way. But no one in my family really had a job either. So, <laughs> so that was... Um, yeah, <laughs> didn't have a lot of mentors pointing you in the right direction, but you you obviously found some some you you mentioned reading property investment books and I'm assuming you know forums and things like that. What what did you land on, and were there any sort of mentors that that taught you about all this stuff? Uh, a big thing was I guess the the family and the people that I grew up with. I pretty much just saw what they were doing and saw what their parents were doing, and I figured, well, that's not working. I'm going to do something totally different. Yeah. Um, so it was pretty much having that influence and figuring out that's definitely not the path that I want to go. Um, I did start reading property investment books like uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, which is a personal finance book, yep. um, Steve Knight's Zero to 130 Properties. started watching um, like YouTube videos, there wasn't many around, but mainly it was just the property investing books and especially uh, property investing magazines. Yep. Back then they had... Um, API, Australian Property Investor, um, Australian Property Investor, and your Property Investor magazine. So those kind of things. Where I'd see other, I guess, young people that were 25, 30, out a little bit older than me that have you know properties and they're making money and you know building 
wealth for for their future. And that's where I kind of you know saw that. I was like, okay, that might be something that I want to do. Um, so then I did, it was just for the next between the ages of you know eighteen or seventeen, right before I bought my first property, for the next five years was just educating phase. Yep. And um, while I was working jobs after on the way to the jobs on the way home after on the weekends and all that kind of stuff they're just trying to learn as much as they so you you obviously got to that point where you had a deposit of a, i think it was around 20k um at age 17 or thereabouts what can you can you explain sort of the i guess the the research that you did when you were looking at pulling the trigger on this first um property and talk us about the numbers and and where it was and that sort of thing yeah definitely so i was my goal when i was 16 was to buy a property when i was 18 and i signed a contract when i was 18 but settled when i was 19. it still counts um, but saving up that yeah it still counts i think it does <laughs> um that that entire phase i guess was when I was I had roughly the twenty thousand, which I've saved over about a year to two years of working at McDonald's after school and after hours and on weekends and all that kind of stuff, and just putting as much as much money away as possible. In terms of finding the property, realestate.com, that was um, around back then. I would look on first. I'd, I'd first go to areas that I knew, which ninety nine percent of people only stick with areas that they yeah. knew, and that was places that I grew up around. So the western suburbs. Given I was working at McDonald's at the time, and I had a very very small income, and I had a very small deposit, even back then, I could only my borrowing capacity, from what after going to about seven or seven or more different banks, they said I could borrow about one hundred and forty thousand, yeah. which wasn't much back then. It's definitely not much now. No, it's a deposit now. Um, yeah, basically. Um, so I knew that I kind of, but I just wanted to get in. I wanted to start small. I always wanted to get a house first, but I kind of had to be realistic about it. And I you know, thought that better to buy a property, even if it's a unit or a townhouse, than buy nothing at yep. all. So that's, I guess, the first thing I did was just lower my expectations and start small. I didn't have to go for a house. So I didn't have to continue saving and waiting another year or two which the market could have moved within that year anyway. So I just, I lowered my expectations start I realize that this is just going to be the first one it's not going to be the dream house that I buy moving to it's not going to have it's not going to be fancy or anything like that so I started looking around the area for that kind of price range then there was nothing that I could find so I looked to other areas which was the central coast around the Wyong yep. council around the central coast and the reason why I looked there is because we used to go there um, holidays and do like camping and all that kind of stuff, you know, once or twice a year with, with the family when we would do that. It's pretty much the only holiday we could afford back then was go camping at the beach. Yep. <laughs> so we, I looked at those kind of areas and then eventually I found a couple of properties that I went and checked out. I found a two bedroom unit. It was listed at 145,000, which was ridiculously cheap at the time. And it's even more cheap today. Um, and it rented out at the moment at that time for about 200 to $220 a week. So wow. I knew then, because I did my education, I read all the books, that was about a 7% rental yep. yield roughly. So 200 a week rent, maybe more, the purchase price 145 So I'm like, eh, it's going to pay for itself. Worst case scenario, I might have to put it up 
after all the additional expenses, council rates, quarter rates, management fees, insurance, I might have to put 20 bucks a week in. Yep. That's not bad. And then a bit more research, I ended up buying it for about 138000 so I got a little bit off the price, but other ones around the area were selling for 160 170 at the time, and the owner just needed to sell it and offload it really quickly, and then drop the price. Yep. Um, yeah, so is that, that something that you were sort of targeting then? Because I, I know that that's part of your strategy now, right? If you can purchase under market value for surrounding properties. So was, was, was that just a, a happy accident that sort of spurned you on with that strategy or were you, you actively looking for a distressed sort of sale? Back then, it was more of an accident. It was more of a like, a, yeah, it was, it was, it was like a... It wasn't something I was mainly aiming for. The only thing I was aiming for at the time was that the rental yield covered this, so the rent coming in covered the expenses because I saw other people and I've read all the books that they say they buy something for 500000 and it rents out for three fifty. Well, that's going to be major negative, um, which can have growth, but at the end of the day, I was on a low income. I didn't have, I couldn't sacrifice that um, losing income or a negative year in these properties because of the yep. low income I was on at the time, and especially if anything went wrong. And was that... I didn't know. I thought that university... And was that a bit of a, a fear that the, that the ongoing costs might put you in a position of, of stress or you just basically knew I, I would find something that had a high yield so that I would be covered? Yeah, it just made sense to me. It was... I, I read all the... Um, yeah, especially Rich Dad Porto really emphasises if you, you're building an asset base or a portfolio or you're even in business, you want to make sure you're getting more income than what you what your expenses are. It was just made perfect sense. I wanted to make sure that even if it was a, wasn't the nicest property, yeah. that it was covering itself. And at the time, I never even considered capital growth. I never even thought, because everyone was saying, don't buy a two-bedroom unit, don't buy in that area. It's got graffiti near the area. And I was like, oh, I grew up with areas that had graffiti all, all around it. I'm yeah. not scared of that. And graffiti <laughs> artists so, still need somewhere to live, I, uh, <laughs> That's That's exactly right. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, it had fundamentals. It had train lines. It had shopping centers. It was an hour, hour and a half from Sydney. And... It was it was very basic, but those properties today are like double, triple the price, and I would never would expect it back then. I'll, I'll, I'll probably would have, you know, <laughs> dropped out of a heart attack if you said that probably be worth what it is today because it's it at the time I didn't even consider capital growth. I was just buying you, it to you've get. You still one got of that one, have you? Yeah, still got I it. love that. I love that story. That foundation <laughs> property just stays in the portfolio. I think that's fantastic. So you, you mentioned that you were, at, the first strategy was to find a house rather than a unit, but obviously the price point made a little bit more difficult. What made you think houses were, were a more attractive investment than a unit? Well, I guess it's the, it's the land component, of course. Like houses usually generally have a lot of, um, a lot more land component. However, units and townhouses do have land component, depending on how big the block size and the square meterage is. Um, if it's in a smaller complex, the unit I bought was only in a complex of like 10, so and it was on like you know, 2,000 square meters. So you break that up, you're still getting yeah. technically 200 square meters of land. Um, so technically, you do own that parcel with, yep. you know, of yep. land, technically. But yeah, it just came down to uh, affordability. And one of the houses I figured that oh, I'd if I rent a house or a move into a house or a property, I'd much prefer a house than a unit, of course, because you've got your own land yeah. and you can do, do what you want with it and land goes up at the end of the day. 
yeah, value sure. in any, any so, so much of it. So, you, you mentioned that you weren't really thinking about uh, capital growth, but you assume really you, you got some, uh, at least by now. You, you, you were obviously, the, the motivation was to get out of your situation, but did you straight away think, well, this is multiple properties or did you find yourself in a position where you had that equity and, and that sort of launched you into the next one? Um, kind of. At the time, the, that property didn't really do anything for about four or five years and that's the that's probably the biggest, I guess, um, misconception that most people have about different property markets, especially around Sydney and Melbourne. They think it just all it goes up year on year and year. We usually all go flat for a long period of time, yep. then go through market cycle, then go flat again for a long period of time. So if you buy in the wrong period of the cycle, you can be waiting seven, ten years before it does anything. Um, but at that at that time, buying the first one, I didn't really ever think that I would have 10, 14 properties. I thought, you know, maybe I'd like to have that. But at that time, it was just my goal was getting one property, and that was my goal. And after I actually bought that property, I kind of, <clears throat> kind of felt lost and, you know, a little bit depressed, I guess, because I've done what I wanted to do. My whole three years leading up to that of saving, or maybe even more, was to buy a property. Now I did it. And now I was like, I don't have any other goals yeah. kind of thing. Um, so I didn't really do anything after that for about a year, for a year and a half, besides being a teenager and going out and partying and having fun. It was only after about a year and a half after that where I started getting even more um, into property investing in the magazine and realizing that you can expand your portfolio a lot more. So I started, you know, saving again and, you know, hit the ground. And uh, expand you did. You went from one property at 18. We're going we're gonna to claim at 18 because you exchanged. And um, as, a, as a tax legislation <laughs> nerd, a lot of the things are, are, are a hinge to exchange rather than settlement. So that's, that's in your corner. So from, from one at 18 to 14 at 26, if I'm right. So let's, can we talk yep. about that expansion and, and where you're at at the moment? Yeah, definitely. So from buying the first one, I bought the second when I was 18, 19. I bought the second one when I was about 21. And I, then it was about a year after that, I didn't buy anything. 23, I bought about four in one year. And then the year after that, I bought about three in the next year and then another three. The, and then pretty much from the ages of 22, 23 to now, I've been buying three or four properties every year. You make it sound like T-shirts. Um, as many as I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But let, let, can we talk? Um, we, we, we need yeah, to talk so, about that, Eddie. Um, <laughs> it's it's obviously a little bit more difficult than T-shirts. <laughs> was that a combination of saving or was it all uh, equity? How, how on earth did you manage to, to buy that many, um, you know, year on year? It was majority of savings, to be honest. I did use some equity, but majority of all the properties I bought have been through strict savings. How I did that, when I was buying that first property, which I forgot to mention, I was working a full-time job, but then when I was 18, I also got a second job as a bartender. So I worked this week full-time when I was 18 after I left school, and then I'd also work about 20 hours a week as a bartender. So I'd schedule it during the week so that I could still have weekends free, um, but I was doing 50 to 60, sometimes 70 or 80 hour weeks you know, yep. back then. And I'd work, two, I'd work two jobs for a period of, say, one to two years. Then I wouldn't do it for six months, and then I'd get back into it. So 
I'd always save as much as possible, and I was very, very frugal. And I was when I had friends that were, you know, buying brand new cars for thirty thousand, twenty thousand, forty thousand. I drove around a car yep. for a thousand dollars. It was a, a real crap box. Like it was just disgusting car, but it got me from A to B, and I was just saving money, like just shoving money in an account as fast as I could. You must have been a. It must have been and miserable. Being frugal. You must have been a bit of a miserable bloke to hang out with on the weekends, right? Like, come over to my place. I'm doing two minute noodles, which I'm buying by the pallet, you know, for twenty cents a go. <laughs> That's it. It was. It was. Yeah. Mainly tuna. Tuna is. Uh, yeah. I should have invested in some uh, tuna stocks for when I was younger, because <laughs> I probably would have made a lot of money that way. But. I'd still always find a way to have fun. I'd always find a way to go on holiday still and go out. It was just prioritizing. Um, if we'd go out, my, me and my friends on a weekend, they'd spend two, three hundred dollars on night. I'd find a way to do a cheaper alternative and, you know, only spend $40 yeah. that night. You know, buy a few drinks, etc. cetera. With their... sneak, <laughs> so, sneak a camel yeah. back in or something. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> we, don't want to, we don't want to expose any of those sort of uh, darker secrets there. Um, I'm interested in how you navigated the lending environment. You, you mentioned um, previously that you went to seven or eight banks, so you were obviously knocking on quite a few doors there. But I'm, I'm guessing is, um, I mean, you're still a fairly baby-faced looking chap, but even, um, even, even more so back then. Were, were you getting any resistance with with banks, sort of saying, you know, I'm getting this, I'm getting these um, deposits together, and I'm looking for my sixth, seventh, eighth? That's mm, yeah, absolutely. Was um, I went had a lot of trouble with people actually taking me seriously. Um, I went through different brokers. I went through directly to the banks, and you know, sometimes I'd hear no six or seven times before someone said yes, and that was a big thing. So we're just learning a lot of individual policies that which banks would be best to use. I bought the first five of my properties through a major bank. Then I bought four properties through another yeah. major bank, but all separate. I learned a lot about, um, I guess, banks' policies on how they look at people's borrowing capacities. Every bank, what I've learned is every bank has different borrowing capacity calculators. So you could, back then, I could go to like 10 different banks and one would say I could borrow 200, one would say 300, one would say 400, etc. And, you know, some you can do bigger deposits with, some you, have to, you can do smaller ones with. So they were all different, and it was just a really learning phase. And no one actually sat me down and said, "This is how it works, and this is how it is." And I just—it was pretty much trial and error, again and again and again. And I'd be driving home from what from work from one job, or driving to another job, and I'd be on the phone with, say, Commonwealth Bank, asking what my borrowing capacity is while I was driving. Yep. It was just something I was doing all the time uh, to really find out as much information, and you know, find out how what my borrowing capacity was and what deposit I needed. Just learning all the small things here and there that, um, and basically I, I nutted it down. If you've got a deposit and you've got, um, if you've got a borrowing capacity, you can buy property. There's mainly two things. There's a lot of other noise out there. There's a lot of other things to look for. But if you've got a deposit and you've got borrowing capacity, yep. you can buy property and, right uh, now. At the time, I was no, buying property. No, after you? Yeah. Sorry. At the at the time, I was buying yep. properties for two hundred thousand and under, around that, around still around metro areas, Brisbane, Gold Coast, Adelaide, 
a little bit further out in Sydney, but I was buying properties around two hundred thousand dollars. Ten percent deposits, say ten percent, you can get in with twenty thousand, thirty thousand, with all that other expenses, stamp duty, etc. So every time I saved up twenty, thirty thousand at a deposit, and every time I went to the bank, if I had that too, I just immediately try to buy a property. And, and, and so, how are you finding the lending environment today, whereas back then, I, I guess from a serviceability point of view, it's, it's, it's different for you now, but w would it have been much harder to do what you were doing back then, or is it still the case of if you've got the capacity and the deposit, banks still want to lend? Yeah, it looks, it's definitely gotten hard, but if I were to start all over again from right now, I know for a fact that I'd be able to do the exact same thing, probably much more. Um, the fact that years ago when I was buying my first five, six properties, you could do, I did majority of, majority 10% and 20% deposits. Back then, you could do 5% deposits and I never even took advantage of yeah. that, which was a big mistake. I could have, instead of having 14 properties, you know, going on 15 now, I could probably have 30 properties if I really knew what I yeah. knew back then. So, and back, but um, in saying that, yeah, in saying that now, you can still, I've, you know, helped clients and all that kind of stuff get to five, six properties within, you know, two years. So it's definitely, definitely still possible. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, you, you've, you've, you've spoken publicly about uh, a bit of a victim mentality amongst millennials. And obviously, there's, there's quite a bit of noise uh, out there about housing affordability and that sort of thing. That's obviously sort of changing the, the rhetoric's changing a little bit with the upcoming election and negative gearing and that sort of thing. Do, can you sort of elaborate on, on your point there? Do, do you think that there was, there was something about you that enabled you to sacrifice that you think maybe your, your peers aren't prepared to do? Yeah, I guess in terms of um, buy, getting into the property market or buying your first property, for me it was always I wanted to invest first and then buy a property later. So if we're talking about investment purposes, I guess, um, I when, there's been lots of times where I've been on in the media and the news or on TV and then people say, oh, it's too hard to do that now, the market's moved, it's too hard to get in the property market. And then sometimes I'll say it's too hard, I'll read comments on things and they'll say it's too hard why even bother why would you try let's just rent for the rest of our lives where well, i think that's a massive mistake to make like you can never say something's too hard why even bother it's it, it's really i guess that kind of mentality that i grew up around which i do not like at, like at all when people said oh it's why buy property because you're gonna have to pay the bills and why you know it's the craziest thing i've ever heard um you know, why try to better yourself to because it's going to be hard to do that. Like it's 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 very very silly in in my opinion. Yeah. So I guess having that mentality, like if someone's looking to get in the property market now and build a you know build a portfolio, invest in property, or even buy a property to live in, I, I just break it down. Start off small. You don't have to go for your best dream house right away. You can start off small. I you know, realign your expectations. I wanted a house. I wanted to buy a nice place to live in first. I wanted to get out of the area which I lived in, but I didn't. I invested further uh, further away into a property I can afford. And then once I built an equity, the, the property was paying for itself. I bought another one, bought another one, and eventually grew my portfolio to then buy the big stuff and, you know, get myself to where I want to be. So it's just delayed gratification. Yeah, I, I think you can't can't expect to 
one year or six months that everything's going to change and you know, this confetti's going to fall from the sky. Um, I think you've got to set a plan. You've got to set small goals and then big goals and work towards them. Um, yeah, so but it's still very achievable to this day. Like I've you know, seen people that they've had 20,000 savings, 30,000 savings. You can still use that small amount of money, which is very, very, it's not much at all. You can save that depending on what job or whatever you're in in a year or two years. You know, anyone can save 20,000, 30,000 if they try and if they set a plan in place. And that's enough to still buy a property. You can buy a property, maybe you're in Sydney, but you can buy a property in Brisbane, which places are a lot more affordable, and then you can do was, it up. Was was that your strategy when uh, you sort of you, you purchased, obviously in Wyong, and then I know that you you bought in in Queensland and South Australia. Were, were you looking for properties that were relatively affordable? Uh, uh, I guess in in relative terms for back then as well, that were high yielding. Was that the formula, and is that similar to what you're doing to now? Are you still purchasing the the, the cheaper style properties? Yeah, so at the moment I still pick up properties between two hundred and three hundred and fifty thousand, sometimes even less. I picked up properties within the last few months for one hundred and fifty thousand to, to three hundred fifty. So between if, that, if I don't ask you where you're getting these hundred thousand dollar properties, I'll fear for my own safety, Eddie. <laughs> Say, for example, between one hundred fifty and three hundred fifty. Bear in mind, it could be a house, it could be a townhouse, it could be a unit. So if it's if it's one hundred fifty, yeah. You, obviously, it's not going to be a house. I, I, I particularly like southeast Queensland, and I will continue investing within southeast Queensland region around Brisbane, Gold Coast, within 30, 40 minutes of all regions, all directions, for the next two to three years. And then once the property market, I guess, depending on the, on the cycle, two, three, four years, I might start investing back in Sydney again, you know, after it's... Uh, right before it starts to go through another market cycle, whether that's three years, five years, six, seven years, ten years away, before Sydney starts to really heat up again, that could be a long period of time because it's just come off through a big period. But those kind of areas, you can pick up townhouses. You know, we're talking. I picked up townhouses recently that were built to three hundred and thirty thousand for them in two thousand eleven. They bought off the plan, which I particularly do not like off the plan properties. Yep. The owners paid three hundred thirty thousand for them. I picked them up for two thirty, so a hundred thousand dollars cheaper. Seven years later, ouch. That's within half half an hour of Brisbane, and that's seven years old with depreciation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, of course, and that's going to be near the construction cost of the of the original dwelling. Yeah, it's almost free yeah, land. absolutely. Yeah, and there's lots of um, I do lots of videos on YouTube that you could, that are actually are at the front of these properties and for people to see and all that kind of stuff. Um, some of them bank repossessions for people bought off the plan they paid too much and then six seven years later you know so pretty much they've got to sell them or offload them or whatever the case is. But if they've got a seven or eight percent rental yield, say they're two hundred thousand. And they rent out for three thirty a week. That's an amazing rental yield. Like it's as long as you're gonna you're in the property for the long game. And if you can buy those properties, you can pick up two, three, four, five, ten under your belt. Have them ticking away in the background while you you can still go to work, go on holidays, and they're paying for themselves. And their your asset base is increasing over time. Your wealth's increasing. Rents increase over time. You know, if they're within a half an hour, forty five minute radius of the city, why not buy them? 
it's not like they're buying out in Whoopwop or anything like that. I was gonna, <laughs> so, I was gonna ask you about Whoopwop because obviously property prices in in Whoopwop are, are, are pretty affordable, and there's there's plenty of Whoopwops. That's the last time I'm gonna say it. I promise. There's plenty of, of, of those areas that that are sort of big regional centres that have diversified uh, employment sectors and things like that. You 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 sound like you 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 favour more the sort of the metro cheaper properties than heading out into the regionals. Is is that true? And and do, do you attract uh, problems with tenants when you're looking at those cheaper ones? Um, it's it's definitely true that I favour metro lower price properties as opposed to regional. Um, I guess at the end of the day, when I, I was, I've looked in thousands of different property markets all throughout Australia over the last, you know, seven, eight plus years. And what I found was, say for example, you take New South Wales or Queensland as an example, so Brisbane's probably the third biggest city in Australia. You know, it's got millions of people live there. You can buy say for example a townhouse or a unit or a house within half an hour radius for 200,000, 250,000. Yep. The lower end of the scale of course, sometimes 300, 400, 500, but you can still buy properties for 250. Compare that to say a regional um, area that's three hours or four hours away or six hours away from a major CBD where there's a lot less infrastructure, there's a lot less um, I guess population growth, demand, and all that kind of stuff, and it's just basic common sense that metro city is going to grow a lot more than a. Yeah, over time, it's going to have a lot more population growth than a small place. And I compared the two hundred fifty thousand dollar properties, or hundred or three hundred thousand, to the properties that were roughly the same price in regional areas, two hundred thousand. I was like, at the end of the day, the regional one might rent out for ten dollars more a week, but. I'd much rather be in a metro city because those metro city ones have amazing rental returns too if you're looking at the right areas. Yep. So I'd pick the metro over the regional every day of the week. And what about with the with the cheaper properties? Uh, do you necessarily attract higher costs for, for maintenance? Uh, do you do you have um, issues with, with tenants that might be from a lower socioeconomic background? Not really, to be honest. Um, it's probably the biggest misconception that I've found with my property investing and I guess a lot of people justify not buying smaller properties that they might have more expenses, there might be more repairs, there might be an older property that's 20 years old or 25 years old, but I picks up some new ones that are, you know, seven years old and they're still almost brand new and they're still cheap ones. Um, but I guess in terms of tenants, like you, you, it, within property, you hear nothing but horror stories. You very rarely hear a good story. Like no one's going to walk in the office and say, oh, my tenant's been amazing the last two years. Like, <laughs> yeah. how good is this? So, so you only hear when they have tenants have either stuffed up or, you know, something that something's bad has really happened. So I've got lots of uh, cheap properties in, I guess, different areas. And I've got some other properties that are like, in good blue chip areas that are near the beach and near Westfield shopping centers and really good quality areas too that are properties in my portfolio that I own. And it's really a case by case scenario. I've been pretty lucky with tenants. I've only had like one or two tenants that have broke their lease and at the end of the day, I always have insurance. Yep. So you're covered in that case regardless anyway. Um, but I've also known people that they bought properties in nice blue chip suburbs like in Sydney and Bondi and all that kind of stuff and then the tenants had a party and with and then they trashed the place and it's been in a blue chip suburb so stuff can happen anyway really yeah um, 
Yeah. One of the worst places I've ever been to was tenanted by two doctors, and it was it was so filthy it made you made you want to be ill. It made you worry about sort of some of the stuff they're up to at, at work. But uh, ho- hopefully they're spending so much time at work that they've got no time to to clean, and that's the only issue there. What's um What's next for yourself, Eddie? Have you have you got the dream home in the in the wings? Are you driving a Mustang? Is there a passive income goal? Is there a property goal? What what's what's the next uh, for for Eddie Deline? Um, I'm going to keep continue expanding. I always thought that after ten properties, I would relax, put my feet up, and I have relaxed. I've gone on lots of holidays and all that kind of stuff since, and you know, travelled to Europe lots of times, but. I just have to continue expanding and that's just I have to get to the next level, next stage. What's next for me is I'm going to continue growing my uh, buyer's agency, property buyer's agency business. I'm going to continue expanding my portfolio. I want to hit eventually 100 properties. I want to own 100 properties and that's very achievable. I believe I can do that probably within the next three to five years Um, because, of course, once you build an asset base of small foundation properties, then you can buy bigger things like blocks of units. You can buy a block of 10 or build a townhouse complex from scratch once you've got the equity position. That's where I I guess I buy the the basics properties first and then build my asset base to then do the bigger stuff later. So I want to hit 100 properties and I want to continue growing my business. And I guess I still haven't bought my Mustang. So (laughs) (laughs) it's been almost 10 years of putting it off. Every time I pretty much was going to buy it, I found an amazing property and I just buy that instead. So it's been that delayed gratification where I've been putting off and, you know, not spending money on flashy things or. Can we can we lock you down to when you get to a hundred properties that you will buy a Mustang? Can we have that on public record? That that's definitely a public record. (laughs) Yeah, I um, (laughs) am. Beautiful. I'm gonna I'll buy one before that for sure. But um, yeah, I, I guess it's. When you figure out a formula in terms of property investing that works and you can repeat that again and again and again, I guess that's what I've found over the last you know, few years. It's just a repeatable formula that you, know, it's, you can do this while you continue going to work, while you, you know, have family, kids and all that kind of stuff and other commitments, but you can building this safely in the background. And relatively quickly compared to everyone else because most investors, they get stuck after two, three properties like 0.01% of all investors get past six and property is a numbers game. You've got to have quality, but you've also got to have quantity. So you've got to have both. Of And it, that's what's going to become a com- compound effect over time because you really, I believe you've got to have the numbers. Um, in, Speaking in of your, your formula, and it's clearly a formula that's working, you're... You've you've turned that into your business, Deline Property. Can you can you talk talk to us a, a, about that and and let us know how we can get in in touch with you? Yeah, definitely. So, over the last couple of years, I've um, started my own property buyers agency. It's called Deline Property. Um, basically, help our clients find we find source and negotiate properties for clients. Present them with amazing deals that I would buy. After years and years, myself of finding properties and doing the on ground research and you know, doing that full time. Say if I go through 500,000 properties a week, I'll look through whether it's uh, direct contact with real estate agents, it's properties that they would have come on the market, bank administrators or whatever the case is. Out of those 500 properties, for example, there might be two or three amazing deals a week out of that, for example. But there's not a chance that anyone could buy two or three properties every week. So 
over the years, it's just not kind of been a um, gradual process of, you know, people would come, like clients would come to me and they want help. And I guess that's where I'm very fortunate to be able to do what I love to do and find properties every day and talk to clients and talk to like-minded individuals, which is just the best feeling. Um, and yeah, so I guess how people can get in touch with me, I do always do um, very active on Facebook, YouTube. I try to put as much um, content out on YouTube about property investing and all that kind of stuff and what I've learned over my journey and that stuff's all free. So, and um, yeah, so I'm contacted on the website. Or, awesome. Um, now, Eddie, we, we're going to have to wrap this up, which is, is a shame, but obviously people can chase you down if they're interested in, in more info. But could you leave us with, if there's one piece of advice you can give to, to property investors, what that would be? Yeah, definitely. I would definitely say the one piece of advice could be a few different things, but it would definitely start small. Start small and grow. If you're looking to grow a portfolio and build wealth over time, it takes time. But I always suggest starting small. I've spoken to a lot of people and they go for a million dollar property right away or even sometimes even more or less. But start small takes yeah, and grow. Awesome advice and congratulations on your success uh, today, Eddie, and thank you very much for sharing it with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Mike.